Welcome to the Herbs with Rosalie podcast, a show exploring how herbs heal as medicine, as food, and through nature connection. I'm your host, Rosalie de la Forêt. I'm an herbalist teacher and the best-selling author of the books Alchemy of Herbs and Wild Remedies. I created this podcast to share trusted herbal wisdom so that you can get the best results when relying on herbs for your health. I love offering up practical knowledge to help you dive deeper into the world of medicinal plants and seasonal living. My goal is that you'll walk away from each episode feeling inspired to start working with herbs in your everyday life. Each episode of the podcast is available on my Herbs with Rosalie YouTube channel, as well as your favorite podcast app. Transcripts and recipes for each episode can be found at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. To get the latest news as well as fun bonuses, be sure to sign up for my weekly herbal newsletter. Okay, grab your cup of tea. Let's dive in. I'm excited to be introducing you to my good friend, Lynx Vilden. Before we have her here with us, I want to share how I met Lynx and how she's had such a dramatic influence on my life. I first met Lynx at a pub in Twisp, Washington. My husband and I had just gotten married. We were living on the west side of the state and commuting to the east side of the state, that's Washington State, for me to take an intensive course in structural medicine, which is a type of bodywork. In any case, we were at the pub that night and Lynx was performing on stage as a musician. And I don't remember all the songs that she sang that night, but I do remember one in particular called When I Am an Old Woman. And since I've heard her sing it many times since, it's also in the preface to her book, Return. Well, that night, Lynx also spoke about her Stone Age project, where she spends about three months guiding people and how to prepare for a month of living completely with the earth in the wild with foraged food, natural clothing, shelter, etc. This was admittedly not my cup of tea. But my husband was super into it. And because of that, we ended up moving to the Metau Valley so that he could participate in that. And it also worked out for me to be closer to school. So Lynx is really a big reason that we came here where I have now called this place home for about 17 years. And so Xavier did end up participating in the Stone Age project that following year. And over the years, Lynx and I became friends. We've spent time together around campfires. We've been cuddled up in the winter months. And we've also spent many seasonal celebrations together. Lynx has been practicing and teaching primitive living skills with passion, both in the U.S. and in Europe since 1991. With her experience traveling, exploring, and researching the nature of traditional cultures of Arctic, mountain, and desert regions, she started the Four Seasons Prehistoric Projects program in 2001, which she dedicated to learning and sharing the ancient skills of primitive living, and created Living Wild in 2011. Lynx's story has been featured in the New York Times, Outside Magazine, The Guardian, and others. She currently lives in an old homestead in Norway. You can visit links at linksbuilden.com. Well, my dear friend, thank you for being here and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Rosalie. Good to see you. Yeah. Well, I can honestly say, links that I never thought I would be welcoming you to the podcast because <laughs> this is not usually our our way of being. We've spent more time around fires or lighting mullen torches or under the stars or curled up on buffalo robes and earth pits. This is not really our, our normal mode, but I'm so glad that you were able to be here. 
Well, you know, with the technical issues we had getting me here, you pretty much can know that I'm still not good at doing it this way. <laughs> well, I, I know you're going to come visit me soon, so we'll be back nestled in the yeah, earth together soon. But for now, you are all the way in Norway. And so thanks to technology, we can make this happen. I love that there's silence. You're like, no, I'm not thinking technology. <laughs> yep, Fair enough. Technology. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Links, I love to start the podcast out by asking people what brought them here and how they found their way onto the plant path. And you have actually just written an entire book about your path. And we're going to talk about a lot of that. But I would love to just start from that transition of someone who was born in London to someone who spends many nights sleeping under the stars and just hear how that transition was for you. Yeah. Hmm. It's funny because really when I think about my first 16 years living in and being born and growing up in London, I feel like that was a completely different person somehow. Yeah. I think that we're all kind of products of the place that we are raised in some ways. I was fortunate enough that my mother's side of my family was from Sweden. And so we spent a good part of my upbringing traveling to Sweden and being at my grandparents' house. And they lived on the edge of a little forest. And so even though I was, you know, in school, living a, a city life for most of the time in those first 16 years, I did get that full summers out in Sweden and wandering in the forest with my uncles and aunts. And yeah, I do, I do recall thinking I needed to get out of England as soon as I was old enough to, which is in fact what I did. So at about 16, I, I left the UK. I actually went to Amsterdam. So I was still kind of exploring a city life and yeah I was kind of a little bit in the sort of alternative punk scene and 80s so you know I was one of those young rebels without a cause I guess like many young young people and yeah so I ended up in Amsterdam for about three years and in those years although it was kind of illuminating in many ways being there being alone as a young adult a very young adult. Yeah, I wasn't so good yet at um, monitoring how to take care of my needs, not even my basic physical needs. And so at some point I realized that I just needed to get away. And I thought, well, I should go to Sweden and go see my uncle and aunt and just go be in the forest and see what happens there. Because I just felt like I was in a place that was not super healthy and I didn't really know. I was completely lost. Yes, I went up to Sweden and that was really a big change in my life. I actually never lived in the city again after that. And from there, somehow you made it to the States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was just a few years later. For, for about eight years from the age of about 16, 17, I was just traveling a lot. You know, I was absorbing as much as I could and I had this wanderlust and I have sort of this innate nomadism inside me. Maybe all of us have that in some form or another. Yeah, so I traveled around. I basically just lived out of my backpack, did a lot of traveling around Europe and the Middle East and back and forth between Sweden. And then 
yeah around yeah around Europe and then while I was in my on my travels in Israel when I was about 20 I think at that point or 21 perhaps I turned 21 there yeah I met a guy there and he had been living in America and he said why don't you come to America and I was like well okay why not so at 21 I went to the States it wasn't the first time I'd been there once as a child as well but I went to the States for the first time as an adult and spent a few months living in Washington State with this guy that I'd met in Israel. And yeah, that's kind of where the big change happened because I was back and forth between Sweden and the US for about four years while I was in that relationship. After those four years, I had started wandering around in the mountains there and getting a sense of what true wild meant. And that's when I discovered a book that was written by Tom Brown Jr. And in the back of it, so there was a school and you could learn all these cool things. And I signed right up. I didn't hesitate. And a few weeks later, there I was in New Jersey. And my life changed irrevocably from that point. I, I love that we have that in common. Both of us found our way through Tom Brown Jr. And then beyond, like we walked our own path after that. I'd like to hear more about that and just what that experience was, Tom Brown Jr. School and how and how that led to the next steps in your life yeah let's see well i can recall you know as a child in sweden being in the forest and you know harvesting mushrooms and berries everybody in in sweden does that that's quite a normal thing actually to to forage somewhat and so i can remember even like rubbing two sticks on each other you know because you always heard well how did people make fire before matches and Oh, they rubbed sticks together. So I can remember like rubbing sticks together and feeling there was some heat there. But wow, how did they really do that? It was like I had no clue. And of course, there was no internet or anything back then. Yeah, when I found this school in New Jersey and saw that I could learn some of these skills that I had been curious about for so many years. And, you know, I'd even had like this little survival book, you know, when I was like 10 or 11, I was really into survival and I'd go out in the backyard and like get a tent. I had my little backpack and I'd survive in the, in the backyard. So all of a sudden it was like, wow, now I'm 21 and I can, or 22 or 20, I think no, I was actually almost 24. Now I can actually learn these skills for real. And it was only a one week class, but yes, I made my first bow drill fire. I made cordage. And, you know, we discussed all of these concepts that were alternative to my upbringing. And suddenly I was just in a completely different realm. It was like, this is it, you know. And then there was, on the last day, we had a sweat lodge. And I can very clearly remember coming out of that completely transformed. It was the first time I'd been in a sweat lodge or experienced anything like that. And I came out of there and I literally just like, flung myself onto the earth in this altered state and made my prayer for my life's purpose, which was to, to protect and cherish the earth and learn from how to be a real human being and then share that with other people. Mm. I love that, Lynx. Thanks for sharing that. It reminds me of this section in your preface, which I want all the readers or listeners to know that you can download the preface of Return, A Journey Back to Living Wild by Lynx at 
you can click on a link in the show notes and get that preface chapter, which I highly recommend. It's really beautiful. And then, of course, you can buy the book wherever books are sold. It is published now. I just want to read the section of the preface, which feels kind of strange right now. I'm about to read your book to you, Links, but really I'm reading it to everyone listening. <laughs> All right. The story is about us and Earth. The Earth gives us the opportunity to physically exist. Without her, we cannot live. We are of Earth. We shape her. She shapes us. We all too often seem to have forgotten this. I want us to remember where we come from. It has never been more important. I'm sure we'll talk more about this, Lynx, and how you actually live wild and what that is like for you and for your students. But I'm curious how living closer to the earth has like given you insights into how we can do better as humans and given you insights into earth as teacher. Well, I mean, I wasn't aware as a child of a different way of living than as being an urban person or visiting grandparents and going out in the forest and harvesting berries and mushrooms. But yeah, as I grew older and discovered more and more wildness, both within and without, and started practicing and incorporating some of the skills that have become very fundamental parts of my life today, I recognized Maybe I should backtrack a little bit, actually, because before I went to the Tom Brown class, I had explored all different kinds of artistic endeavors. So I had gone to art school and I had gone to theater school and I liked to write and I played music and I sang and I liked dancing. So I did all of these artistic things because I felt like that was my that was on my, my path and I didn't know that there was, there was another option, actually. And so when I discovered the, the, the primitive skills and the Tom Brown course, what I realized then, and this was the great epiphany, was that when one practices these ancestral living skills, one actually incorporates all of the things that I already loved. So if you look at any indigenous tribe who are living still in a, in a, a form that they would have lived in yeah before industrialization you'll find that yes they make art yes that they dance yes they tell stories yeah they do all of these things that i already love to do and so that was kind of like the missing piece somehow and and i didn't have to choose between i didn't have to choose am i going to be a writer or am i going to be an artist am i going to be a dancer or Am I going to be uh, an actor? You know, I didn't have to choose because it's like, oh, actually, I can be all of those things. Mm-hmm. When we bring all of these things into our everyday lives, worlds, and relationships, I feel like we're tapping into something that is fundamentally human in a very real sense, in a very ancient form that connects us not only with our surroundings and with community, but also with ourselves. So, you know, from a life living, uh, an adult life, living largely outside and sharing these, these practices with people and seeing what that does when we open up and when we uh, enable ourselves to sink really deeply into nature together with a small clan, I feel like for all of us who've ever done that, or all of my projects, 
we touch something that's so precious and so whole and so real and so raw that unless you've ever experienced it, it you probably can't even understand what it is that I'm getting at. Something absolutely precious is there for us to explore and to experience if we can take it to a level like that. I definitely, just hearing you say all those words definitely evoked a feeling in me and just a remembrance because while I've never been a part of your project, I have been, had the honor of coming to your place and spending time with folks around the campfire, singing songs. We often did winter solstice celebrations together, lighting of mullen torches. And it is such a powerful, raw experience that has truly left a mark on me. And I feel like so many of my memories with you, I actually don't have a great memory. I memorize facts, but I don't always remember experiences. But I feel like my memories with you are just emblazoned in my mind because I think of that rawness and that realness and and definitely that, you know, evokes those deeper feelings, which when I read Return, I was excited to read Return because you're my dear friend and I love you. But I got so pulled in, I couldn't even put it down. I think I read the book in about 48 hours. And really, that was like what kept me reading was that like evocative feeling of what it's like to be out there barefoot in the earth, to sleep on your buffalo robe underneath the stars, the picking of berries and that community aspect as well. I wonder, Lynx, if we should, I know what you do really well, but maybe a lot of my listeners don't. So I'm curious if like you could you explain maybe one of your long longer term projects like what you would do here in Washington State with the Stone Age project just to give people a sense of what you do and what your students journey through as well yeah yeah of course yeah so I've always liked to do long programs because I feel like you can't you can't truly connect as a small community or clan without having time to do that so I've largely focused on my long programs and bringing people together for between three and six months. And in that time, you get to go through all of the, you know, all of the honeymoon stage, and then you get to the parts where conflicts arise, and you get the explosion part. And then if you're lucky, you come through that in one piece, and and the group is going to be stronger for that. So the community level has been a very large part of what I feel is missing in, in a lot of other programs that I've either worked at or been aware of in the past. Yeah, so when people come for five, six months, something like that, you know, they're living outside, we're camping together, we do classes, and then we have time in between the classes where people can carry on practicing, they can go in and do their town stuff or, you know, do their emails or whatever. But where I was living in, in the US, then there, there was no electricity and there wasn't no cell service. And, and so we were very much actually off grid and off out of connection zone with anything. So yeah, people, if they needed to make a call, then they had to wait until class was over and then hitch a ride into town and go to the library or something. They wanted to check their emails. So it was, it was a forced but not enforced just by circumstance. It was a forced way of being together in community where, you know, there was no sitting around the fire, looking at your scrolling through your phone or sending a, a WhatsApp message or whatever, because it wasn't even possible. So yeah, camping together for four to six months and then preparing these classes and having a week of class and then a week of not class, but 
everyone is living together the whole time. So nobody goes home. It's like, well, going home means there's your tent, there's your tent, here's the main fire circle, there's the kitchen tent, and we're going to eat a meal every night together, and we're going to share. So it's it's kind of a crash course in in community living, I guess. Sometimes it really crashes too. So after these months of preparing various skills, and we'll start with very basic Stone Age skills, like how to take a rock and make a stone tool out of it, how to take the wood from the forest and be able to make fire with it, or, or cordage, and then we'll build bows, and then we'll learn how to tan hides and process animals and make baskets and make pottery. So we're constantly building a material culture, a material skills culture, so that in the end of these first yeah, four or five months, we actually have clothes that we've made, baskets and containers that we've made, tools that we've made, weapons that we've made, and wild foods that we've harvested and preserved, maybe even some things that we've hunted. Uh, we often would pick up roadkill and things like that and process wild meat, but we'd have all of the material culture to be actually a small Stone Age clan. So then the culmination of all of this is that we would go out into the wilderness, taking only these things that we've made, with just the knowledge that we have learned over the last months, plus of course all of our life experiences, and see what it's like to live as a little clan in the wilderness for several weeks. And usually it would be about three to four weeks, something like that. Thank you for that explanation. And there's so much there that I want to highlight. One is I really appreciate how both in the book and now here you're talking about community and how important that is. And you mentioned in the book that your first project, you didn't realize how big of a role community could kind of make or break thing. And that was a learning experience for you. And then something you've been cultivating ever since. And also what I really appreciated is through all of your writings, is that you didn't really romanticize anything. It was very much the reality of what things are like. And you talk about the tough times, you talk about the challenges. And what was interesting for me personally to read the book was because I've actually transcribed a lot of your journals, um, typed them out from handwritten. And then I've mm -hmm. also heard a lot of your stories over the years too. And it was just so raw links. Like there was just no you know, making this sound like, again, this like kind of romanticized thing, you really share what it's like. And you share the joys and the challenges, both with community, with hunger, with energy levels, all sorts of things that really, I think, brings that rawness. And that really helps to evoke those feelings. I feel like maybe we should talk about plants a little bit, Lynx, because you're a plant lover, I'm a plant lover. And I think we have a couple of plant lovers listening as well. Where should we start with the plants? Let's start with, I remember being pushed in my stroller through some, probably some estate garden in England. So it must have been very small, maybe three or four years old. So my mom or dad was pushing the stroller along and there were plants on either side on this walkway. And I was slinging out my hand and slapping each plant as we went along and I was saying, that's not a stinging nettle, that's not a stinging nettle, that's not a stinging nettle. And inevitably, along came a stinging nettle. And this is how I learned which one was stinging nettle, because I slapped the stinging nettle and it was like, that's a stinging nettle. And 
that's my earliest plant memory of actually being able to identify a plant. So I was probably three or four years old. And of course, nettles, you know, for, for probably many, many, many of us, it's, you know, one of our big loves, right? Yeah, from there, I remember stinging nettle wars where you'd get stinging nettles tied to the end of a stick and you'd like thrash your, the other, the opposing army or team or whatever. So that's my, that's my initial connection, I guess, with stinging nettle. And like I said, you know, we would go to, to Sweden and we would go out in the forest and we would harvest plants, berries mostly, of course, if one remembers what child does not end up home with a, a basket that's more, more or less empty, but a very blue mouth and tongue <laughs> and face and fingers. So yeah, plants were a, a big love from early on, certainly, but I can also remember, you know, my parents, well, my mother a little bit differently, but my father, who was a city boy himself, you know, it was a lot of fear around it. Like, oh, don't put that in your mouth. You know, don't touch that. We don't know what that is. Oh, it could be poisonous. You know, so there was a lot of this, Fear bred into a, around plants, wild plants, and so it wasn't really until until I moved to the states actually when I started wandering in the mountains in the North Cascades, where I got to this point where I realized that I felt so disconnected from this beautiful nature because I had to carry this enormously heavy backpack that was largely filled with food if I wanted to be out there for any length of time. And so I didn't really know very many wild plants. And I started just thinking about that. And I thought, well, what if, what if I carried a book about wild edible plants instead of all the food, you know? So maybe that could like weigh a little differently and I could just harvest my food while I'm out here and then I could extend my my forays into the wilderness without having to be burdened by all of this food that I brought in from, from a city or from a town. So that is probably, yeah, when I was about 21, 22 years old is when I started to, yeah, really dive deeply into plants as food. That was my, my main interest at that time. And so I, yeah, I started getting a lot of books. Remember there was a British one called Food for Free and I got the Stalking the Wild Asparagus and I had basically, yeah, you know, Audubon or whatever these general um, identification plant books are. But that's where I would always be in the bookstores is looking at the plant books and, you know, learning more about nature and plants and so on. So yeah, that led me through through my book perusals in bookstores to Tom Brown's book. And it was actually the very first book I read of his was the wild, his Wild Plants book, Edible and Medicinal Plants, I think it was called. And that was the very first one. So I looked at this book and I was like, wow, this is really different. You know, it's not just, this is the plant, this is how you identify it. And there wasn't really much more than that in, in some of the books until I got into your Gibbons and some of these other more anecdotal plant books. So this was, I think Tom Brown's book was the first anecdotal plant book that I discovered and I was, I was quite taken with it. And that's how I found out that there was a school because on the back page it said that there was a school and then he'd written this book, The Tracker and blah, blah, blah. So I read The Tracker and then I was there. It was like I was off to New Jersey to change my life. After that 
experience at the tracker school, I went back to Sweden because I was traveling back and forth between the US and Sweden. And I went out into the forest. It was winter time. And the first big struggle with plants was trying to reproduce making a fire with woods from the forest. And that was a very difficult thing. And it took months and and I kind of gave up. And then in the end, I did manage to succeed again. I, I write about that in my book, that first, those first and second fires that taught me so much. During that time, shortly after that class, I actually had a dream. And in this dream, I was asked if I wanted to be a healer. And you know how it is in dream time, you know, it's like they told me I had 24 hours to decide. And so in my dream time, I thought about it for a couple of hours. And then I was like, well, you know, how many times, what kind of opportunity like this is ever going to, what if I say no, you know, you've been chosen to be a healer. Oh no, no thanks. So I said, okay, yes, I would do it. I'm gonna, it was kind of like, and then you have to commit your life to it, right? So it wasn't just this small thing, like you've been chosen to be a healer, so that means you're gonna do a, a three-week course on healing or something. So it was like, no, and then you have to commit your life to it. So it was a big deal in the dream that I was committing my life to becoming a healer. And of course, to me at that time, being a healer meant being a plant medicine person, a herbalist such as yourself. And so in the dream, I went to my mentor and her name was Shua Awa. She lived in the forest and, you know, she was my 24-year-old impression of what a native healer would look like. And, and I lived with her in her cabin in the woods and she taught me about plants and how to be a healer. So I woke up from this dream and I was like, whoa, that's... Um, that was a pretty intense and special dream. And I've always given a lot of credibility to, yeah, dream time and what it can teach us. So, so when I have a dream that seems very pertinent like that, I, I don't just disregard it. You know, I usually write them down and then think about them, see what lessons there are within. So I thought a lot about this dream and I went back to the States that spring and I did do some more classes at the track school. And... I couldn't shake this idea of that I've actually chosen to be a healer. And that means I need to learn about plants more. You know, this was my avenue into this world through the plants. And so I found a place, I don't remember, someone must have told me about it. It may be one of the other students who've been there. But in Arizona, there's a school called Revis Mountain School of Self Reliance, run by a man called Peter Bigfoot, who is a, an herbalist. and so I contacted them and they also had a community there and I contacted them and I said I'd like to come and be an intern and learn. So yeah, I, I went out to Arizona. I was really just living, you know, very hand to mouth. You know, I didn't have much money, but I used to trip around. I used to call it faith tripping where I'd just be like, okay, I've just got enough money for a bus and we'll see what happens when we get there kind of a thing. So I showed up in Arizona and I lived on this community and I started learning about plants and about plant medicine and about the desert. And I absolutely loved being there in the Superstition Mountains. It's a beautiful place. And I learned so many valuable things from Peter and his partner and the other people in the community at the time. And 
I was also really intrigued and still really on fire with all of the other skills I'd learned at the tracker school, you know, so I was living in a teepee and I was lighting my fire. Basically, I just threw away my matches and it's like, okay, if I don't make a bow drill fire, I don't have a fire. And I was helping with the, the plant stuff and making the plant medicines. I was tanning hides in my spare time and, and all these things. And what was kept on bothering me, though, was, wow, there's so many good herbalists out there. There's so many good plant people. It's like, how am I ever going to be able to be this healer if, if I have all these other interests, you know? It's like, you have to be so dedicated to be, to be a healer. And, and I still thought, thought that being a healer meant being an herbalist, right? And then I believe I had another dream, or maybe it was some sort of vision or something, but at some point I heard a voice that said, you can heal with plants, you can heal with a smile, you can heal with a song, you can heal with a touch, you can heal with a look. And I came out of that and I was so relieved. I was so relieved. I was because I realized that I'm not a specialist, you know? So I love all of these things equally. Maybe not absolutely equally, but I, I just love the diversity of being able to learn and share all of these different kinds of skills, you know? So I get so enamored of making pots when I'm making pottery, that's my favorite thing. And when I'm harvesting wild plants, that's my favorite thing. But when I'm making a bow, that's my favorite thing. Or when I'm tanning hides, well then that's my favorite thing. So suddenly I felt like, oh yeah, I'm let off the hook. I can still be a healer, but I don't have to be an herbalist. So it didn't stop me from learning about plants, but it did give me the, it gave me the opportunity to, to stay, to keep it broad, you know? And yes, I will never be a specialist. If you ask me about any one of these things that I do, I can easily come up with 10 people off the top of my head who are way better than me at any one of them. So yes, yeah, so my passion is to be able to do all kinds of things within this realm of ancestral or natural or primitive skills, if you like. I never like put plants away and said, okay, this is not really my thing anymore. I'm going to be a hide tanner, even though I was a hide tanner as more or less a specialization for quite a few years because it became the way that we earned money. Yeah, the, the, the love and desire and passion for plants, it, it never went away either. And that's still, whenever I come to a new place here living in Norway, for example, it's like, wow, I'm going to discover all these new beings, you know, and I want to dive in. And I feel like all of these skills, it's, you know, it's kind of like you take off a layer and you get a little bit deeper. And then sometimes you put it away and you don't really come back to that for a year or two years maybe, you know. I made my first bow in 1990, 1991, I think. And then I didn't make another bow for probably 15 years. And then all of a sudden it was like bow making, this is my favorite thing, you know? And I've uh, learned so much about bows in the last six or eight years, something like that. So plants though, I mean, we eat plants and the animals that we eat, eat plants. Plants give us, you know, so many things for utility as well as food and medicine. And so I've been sort of 
peeling off the layers year by year by year. And you never really get to the heart of something unless maybe even as a specialist, you never really get to the heart of it because there's always something new to learn or another environment. And because I'm a nomad and I travel the world, there's, it's sort of like an infinitesimal, um, in, what's that word? Infinite? No, an infinite. An infinite. I know the word, but there's no way I can say it now. <laughs> I think you said it right. The first time. It's called infinite. There's, so there's an infinite variety. There's an infinite number of things to learn about plants, just plants, right? Hmm. So yeah, it's an ongoing exploration and, and it's broad. That's what keeps me passionate about teaching is keeping it broad and being able to jump from one thing to another because I would probably just by my nature get tired of just teaching people how to make a bow drill fire, for example. It's like, yeah, let's do something else, you know? So that's why one of the reasons I love teaching so much is that, yeah, I get to explore nature, experience nature with other people, but then explore this other thing that happens when your hands are busy making things, then somehow your mind gets free too. And then nature has this clear slate to work with, with you. And that's where the magic really happens, I believe. And in these long programs that I run, yeah, a lot of deep transformative experiences occur in myself as well as the students. Mm-hmm. I remember years ago when Xavier was in your Stone Age project program, one thing that he would say often is that he loved kind of like the non-hierarchy of the classes in that you were there with the students doing the same things everyone else was. You weren't like up on your pedestal looking down, so to speak. You know, it's obviously you offered a lot of teaching and guidance, but you were there tanning the hide just as everyone else was tanning their hide and you were there making a bow drill and you were there harvesting the plants. And and I like that, how this is a very immersive thing that you are obviously passionate about and involved with every step of the way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I've kept my school quite small, because I guess I could have had the opportunity to to make it bigger and hire instructors and sit at the computer and work all these things and become an administrator. But that's like my biggest fear, because I do. That's what I want to do is I want to be out there. I want to be doing these things together with people. Um, and that's the most important part of it for me is to, yeah, to be out there in nature doing it. Yeah. And now you do have a new role coming up and that you're organizing. I'm not sure what you're calling. You wouldn't call it a conference symposium. I don't know. A gathering. Yeah. A gathering. Yeah. Gathering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, certainly. Yeah. So the Lithica gathering, it's something that started gestating. Oh gosh. A lot, many years ago. I, I think it was 2010. Yeah, so in 2010, Eric Valley came out to my place, filmmaker and photographer, and we worked together for a couple of years. In his book, he said that I had said, why is it that we have all of these wild places that are preserved for wild animals, but not for wild humans? And that sort of became this thing, especially when it comes to indigenous people who were evicted from their lands, their indigenous and native lands, and not able to practice their traditional hunting and harvesting practices at all because it became a wildlife reserve. So I was kind of like, well, that's 
something's wrong with this picture. That's sort of taking ourselves as a species, setting us aside and saying, well, we're not actually part of the natural world. The natural world is this thing out here and we're somehow separated from that. And that feels like the start or the cause of all the problems that we actually have today is the separation that we feel or the superiority that we feel from, from all the other living beings on the planet. So anyway, I mulled this idea over it in my mind for many years, and I often brought that up with people. It's like, so well, what about that? You know, well, why couldn't we have a place where humans could live as wild humans and everything else can live as wild, whatever it is, you know, we can all just be equalized there, but just live there as a wild being. Yeah, many years went by and I discussed this concept with people and it wasn't it wasn't my thing only. There was many, many people who were just like, yeah, you know, we need to buy a piece of land somewhere and we can just live as wild people. And what always held me back was, oh my God, but can you imagine the bureaucracy of trying to do that in our world where you have to, you know, get a permit for every single little thing? And that was kind of what just kept it as a, an idea in my head, but I didn't make any movement. Yeah, actually, it was my friend Werner from Germany who's part of a Stone Age group there in Albersdorf and we've worked together quite a bit and I met him in Namibia. He's worked and lived with the San people. I also write about that in my book and he said well it's not going to happen if nobody does it. We're just going to talk about it. So he put it out to all of his Stone Age cohorts around mostly around Germany but in southern Europe and you know 50 people were like yeah we agree let's do it let's make something. So I jumped into that bandwagon and we started, you know, creating an idea about what does it actually mean to be a wild human, you know, or to re, we're not wild, right? The best we could be is feral or rewilded, right? So this is a phrase that's becoming more and more common is rewilding in the last few years. So how would that look? What would a rewilded community actually look like? And how could we possibly go about that? And what would that mean? So one of our group, we were thinking of like a name, like what could we call our group? And one of the guys in the group, a good friend of mine called Torsten, also a German guy, he came up with the, the name of Lithica, because Lithic means of the stone, right? Paleolithic, the old stone age, Mesolithic, middle stone age, Neolithic, new stone age. And he's like, how about the Lithicans, you know? How about we live on Lithica, the place of the stone? And it just is such a beautiful word and a beautiful name. And I feel like it really has all the essence of, of this idea. So Lithica, it became. And we created an association in Germany. And some people were very active. But as with many of these things, when you get a whole bunch of people online talking to each other just like we're doing and there's all these ideas floating around everyone's sitting in their apartment in their city saying yeah we all need to be rewilded and then and then pretty soon you check into something else and then there's something else that's really exciting and takes your attention away and so gradually 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 people kind of dropped out until there wasn't hardly anybody left and yeah i guess i was a bit i felt quite demoralized by it and that's maybe one of the reasons I've often worked alone. If I have an idea and I want to do something, it's like, 
I'm just going to do it, you know? I, it's like, I don't care if I don't know how to do it, but I'm just going to start doing it because I can't figure it all out ahead of time. It's going to be a process and it's going to morph and change. It's, it's, it's a journey, right? So, so I didn't want to really let it go. And there was a couple of people who were still kind of in. And then, you know, I had some students last year who came up here to Norway and, and they, you know, the people who I get excited about it, you know, I talked to them and it's like, what about this? And everyone's like, yeah, 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 because that's how it always is. But then the hard part is the nuts and bolts. Well, how are we actually going to do this? Well, how, you know, how does that look on the ground kind of a thing? So in the end, I was just like, well, I got, I got 20 acres here in, in, in Norway. So I'm going to make a model of Lithica right here on my 20 acres. It's not going to have the five, you know, a thousand acres of land that we would really need to have a real clan of 30 rewilded people. But I just make a model of it. So I do. I have this. I'm sitting in what's the 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 modern what will be the modern zone right now, where there is a computer and there is electricity, and it's still rustic. There's no indoor plumbing or anything, but it's definitely modern. You couldn't call it anything but modern. It's a comfortable modern space, aesthetic and comfortable. And then we have our rewilding zone, which is our transition zone, and that's just up the hill up here. And that's where, yeah, people can go and you can build things with metal tools and you can wear your everyday clothes. But, you know, you're going to be using an axe and a, a saw and a knife and some stone tools. And it will be a little bit of a transition. And then there's the wilderness zone. And I also created a small wilderness zone on my property here. It's about maybe, I don't know, maybe two acres. So it's a portion of my of my land and basically I won't myself or let anybody go in there unless they go in there as a stone age rewilded person hmm. and that means that they can go that means that nobody cannot go in there but what it means is that if you don't have the trappings like if you don't have clothes is the main thing you haven't got buckskins that you made you just got to take off your clothes and then you can still go in there because you're a rewilded human if you are just dressed in what you came into this world in, which is nothing, right? So I have this little zone that's the wilderness zone. And I have taken some of my students in there. And I go in there too sometimes, not so much in the winter because I could do it in the winter because I have enough Stone Age gear to go in in the winter. But mostly I take people in like after a high tanning class and they wrap their hide around them. And then we go off into the wilderness zone. And it is something really special when you just make this decision that I'm only going to go in here as a, a Stone Age pe person. And so, so people ask me, well, why Stone Age? And what, what's the purpose or value of that? And really the main purpose and value of it is we actually can't do much damage if we only have Stone Age equipment with us. And that's the main thing, because this whole idea of rewilding, it's so easy to say, yes, we're going to, you know, rewild this, but we can do it fast if we take the chainsaws and, you know, maybe a few chemicals to get rid of the plants that we don't want. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's so easy for things to slip into this modern way of, okay, we're going to do it faster, we're going to do it more efficiently, and we'll just quickly do and And that's the whole point is like, okay, well, if we have a wilderness zone where you can only be Stone Age, 
yeah, you can still impact it. You can take your stone axe there. You can still chop down trees. You can still take rock and you can still make a fire. You know, there's a lot of things that you can do as a Stone Age person. But I personally feel like we couldn't damage the earth nearly so much if we only used Stone Age technologies. Yeah, all of the other beings that come in and out of this wilderness zone, the plants and the animals and the rewilded humans, I feel like there's, yeah, there's an opportunity there for something absolutely in magical to happen. I've had enough glimpses of it during our Stone Age projects that to, to preserve a piece of earth or many pieces, that's the big dream, is that this idea, this concept of Lithica could catch on, you know, that people could say, oh, on my land, yeah, okay, over here I have, it's just 10 by 10 meters, let's say, or it could be one meter. And, and, and it's like, I'm not going to go and do anything in that little piece of land unless I do it as a rewilded human. So, yeah, so Lithica has been developing quite quickly in the last few months. And now we have a Norwegian association and we're planning the first Lithica gathering this summer, the 24th to the 30th of June. And we have some amazing instructors. It's going to be a good time. Yeah, we're going to spend a week doing skills together, but also living in community, discussing the idea of what Lithica could be with a, a larger group of people. And we've started looking at pieces of property and we're taking donations and yeah, the gathering is all a fundraiser for the Lithica Association. The premise is, at some point, we're going to buy a land specifically for creating a Lithica community. And we'll start that here in Norway. But it's my big dream that they'll become Lithica lands all over and we can travel from one Lithica land to another, maybe by sailboat or, or horseback or something like that. Remember what it actually means to be a rewilded human. And where can people learn more about the Lithica Gathering? Yeah, we have a, a website set up. It's called lithica.earth. And Lovely. it explains the, the whole project, Lithica project, but it also gives a lot of information about this summer's gathering. And it will probably become an annual event. Mm, wonderful. So lithica.earth. Well, thank you so much, Lynx, for spending this time with us and sharing your story. And I'm really excited for people to get a copy of your book, Return. I know they're going to love it as much as I do. And again, for folks wanting to check it out, they can download a preface of the book written by Lynx and check it out in that way. And Lynx, I'm wondering if we could end today by you reading the last, the last little section of the preface to us. Yeah. In return, I want to take readers inside the peace, stillness, and silence we've left behind. We will re-enter a world where we live with the seasons and from the land. The light we see is from the stars overhead, the rise and fall of the sun and moon, or the flickering of the fire. We are heated by that sun and that fire. We drink the water that pours from the earth or the sky. I will share my own experiences of connection with earth through the skills that I have acquired and taught using the alchemy of earth, water, air, and fire to create tools and make fire. Our stone tools cut and shape the wood that becomes the bow with which we hunt for nourishment. Earth sustains us, circling the sun as we cycle through life, death, 
and rebirth. Without her, we are lost. It's a truth we all fundamentally know, but one that recedes in the rush and madness of modern life, the prioritization of convenience and money over time, community and connection. I hope this book will help us remember. Thank you, Lynx. It's also available on audio. Which I can't wait to listen to it on audio and hear your voice read the book. It's beautiful. So lovely to see you and thanks for inviting me. An absolute pleasure. It's always so good to see you. I love you, Lynx. See you soon. Thanks for being here. Don't forget to head over to the show notes at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com to download your free preface to Lynx's book, Return. You can also get a transcript of the show. There you'll also be able to sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is the best way to stay in touch with me. You can also visit Lynx directly at lynxvilden.com. If you'd like more herbal episodes to come your way, then one of the best ways to support this podcast is by subscribing on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I deeply believe that this world needs more herbalists and plant-centered folks, and I'm so glad that you're here as part of this herbal community. Also, a big round of thanks to the people all over the world who make this podcast happen week to week. Nicole Paul is the project manager who oversees the whole operation from guest outreach to writing show notes to actually uploading each episode and so many other things I don't even know. She really holds this whole thing together. Francesca is our fabulous video and audio editor. She not only makes listening more pleasant, she also adds beauty to the YouTube videos with plant images and video overlays. Tatiana Rusikova is the botanical illustrator who creates gorgeous plant and recipe illustrations for us. I love them. I know that you do too. Christy edits the recipe cards and then Jenny creates them as well as the thumbnail images for YouTube. Michelle is the tech wizard behind the scenes and Karen is our student services coordinator and customer support. For those of you who like to read along, Jennifer is who creates the transcripts each week. Xavier, my handsome French husband, is the cameraman and website IT guy. Thanks to Rising Appalachia for their beautiful song, Resilience. Find more of their music at risingappalachia.com. It takes an herbal village to make it all happen, including you. Thank you so much for your support through your comments, your reviews, your ratings. I read every review that comes in because they're like a little herbal love letter that brightens my day. Like this one. Thank you for your thoughtful and informative podcast. I'm studying to become an herbalist and your episodes lift my spirits whenever I start to feel overwhelmed. Do you love this podcast? If you leave a review for me on Apple Podcasts, I may be reading your herbal love letter on the show next. All right, you've lasted to the very end of the show, which means you get a gold star and this herbal tidbit. As I mentioned in the podcast, I've spent several winter solstices with links over the years and one tradition we always do is light mullen torches. This begins with gathering the old dried out mullen stalks from the year before. These are then dipped in some type of oil with links that's often rendered deer fat and but vegetable fats can also work as well. They are then lit up by placing them in a fire until they light and then we would often sing while marching through the snowy forest with our torches and then place them around an evergreen tree. <laughs> 